Police officer Patrick Kearney woke up on July 2, 1881, excited to head to his post for the day. It had been all over the papers. President James A. Garfield was on his way out of the Capitol for a vacation, and he'd be using the train on Patrick's beat. Leaning against a lamppost, he waited in anticipation at the Baltimore and Potomac Railroad Station, watching for the president's carriage to come around the corner. When Garfield finally arrived, Patrick asked if he could help with the luggage. From the window, the president asked Patrick how long until his train departed. Ten minutes, he proudly responded. Garfield nodded. Seconds later, the door opened. Garfield, his teenage sons Harry and Jim, Secretary of State James Blaine, and Secretary of War Robert Todd Lincoln exited the carriage and made their way to the station entrance. Before he entered, Garfield suddenly turned around and faced Patrick. Patrick saluted the president. Garfield smiled and tipped his cap in return. A feeling of pride swelled in Patrick as he made his way back to the lamppost. He couldn't wait to tell his wife that he received a salute from the president himself. Patrick had paid less attention to another passenger traveling through the station that day, a short, dirty-looking man named Charles Guiteau. The officer didn't know it, but it was Guiteau, not Garfield, who was about to change the future of the United States. One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. You can find episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Assassinations for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Assassinations in the search bar. This is our first episode on the assassination of President James Garfield by Charles Guiteau in 1881. Shot on July 2nd, Garfield survived for 80 days before finally succumbing on September 19, 1881. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This week, we begin our exploration into the troubled life of Charles Guiteau. Charles believed that he was a soldier from God and that it was his mission to kill James Garfield and heal a fractured Republican Party. Next week, we'll dive into the immediate aftermath of the shooting. We'll follow Garfield's struggle to recover, Guiteau's trial, and what may have happened had Guiteau not pulled the trigger. James Garfield never had intentions of running for president. In fact, at the beginning of the 1880 Republican National Convention in Chicago, Garfield wasn't even a candidate. He was simply a representative from Ohio who just so happened to also be a senator-elect waiting for the upcoming term. 
the Republican Party was fractured. One faction was the Stalwarts. Led by Roscoe Conkling, these traditional Republicans wanted Ulysses S. Grant to run for a third term. On the other side were the more moderate half-breeds. They supported either Senator James Blaine or then-Secretary of Treasury John Sherman. Garfield had thrown his support behind Sherman, though mostly out of obligation to a fellow Ohioan. The balloting process was long and arduous. At first, it seemed like neither of the factions would give an inch. However, no candidate had enough votes to secure the nomination. It seemed as if they would be stuck in a deadlock. On the second ballot, the much-respected Garfield received a vote from a delegate from Pennsylvania. Garfield shrugged it off, clearly a throwaway vote. On the next, the delegate from Pennsylvania voted for Garfield again, then again, and then again. Garfield found it amusing, even flattering. On the second day of voting, the first few votes proved stagnant. Nothing changed. But on the 34th ballot, Wisconsin delegates suddenly split their votes between Grant and Garfield. What followed was a tidal wave of support for Garfield, much to the shock of the 47-year-old senator-elect. At the end of the 36th vote, James Garfield, the man who had no desire to run for office, suddenly had 399 votes, 20 more than what was necessary to secure the nomination. He was officially the Republican nominee. Soon, he went on to defeat Winifred Hancock, becoming the 20th president of the United States. One of the many men to campaign for Garfield was a short, disheveled fellow from Illinois named Charles Guiteau. Less than a year after stumping for the new president, Charles would shoot him twice. Charles Julius Gateau was born on September 8, 1841, in Freeport, Illinois, to Luther and Jane Gateau. Charles was the fourth of six children, but the last to survive infancy. When Charles was seven, his mother passed away from unknown causes. He was left to be raised by his older sister Frances and the deeply religious Luther. Luther was a zealot who followed the teachings of John Humphrey Noyes. Noyes believed in an idea called perfectionism. Through the power of prayer and the right education, a person had the ability to become perfect spiritually and intellectually and thus free of sin. Luther forced his religious fanaticism upon Charles, and in June 1860, at the age of 18, Charles joined Noyes' Oneida community in upstate New York. For more information on John Humphrey Noyes and the Oneida community, check out episodes 36 and 37 of another ParCast original, Cults. The Commune presented Charles with the opportunity to finally interact with women. They practiced an act called complex marriage. Essentially open relationships, members were encouraged to have multiple sexual partners. Charles loved the idea of complex marriage. A sense of entitlement swelled in him. He felt he deserved these women after the years of religious devotion instilled in him by his father. However, members of the Oneida felt differently. Most of the women didn't participate in sexual relationships with Charles. 
They found his sense of entitlement and lack of help around the commune repulsive. They began calling him Charles Get Out. One member even jokingly referred to him as a shaker, a religious sect that practiced celibacy. As Charles' frustration with the lack of intimacy grew, a sudden belief that he was a direct soldier of God entered his head. This intense notion grew as the years went on, and by 1866, 25-year-old Charles left Oneida believing that his godly work was needed elsewhere. After leaving the commune, Charles Guiteau wandered around the Northeast aimlessly, working odd jobs and living off a meager inheritance. Finally, Charles decided to become a lawyer. He wasn't very good at it and was said to go off on rambling tangents while in the courtroom. Many of his diatribes were religiously themed, keeping to the belief that he was still one of God's soldiers. He even quit law for a year to become a traveling evangelical preacher. Throughout the 1870s, Charles begged, borrowed, and stole to survive. If he wasn't accepting charity, he was scheming. He attempted to scam people out of money through lawsuits, including two failed suits against the New York Herald and the Oneida community. At one point during this period, as a way to make money, Charles published a religious tome called The Truth, a companion to the Bible. The Truth was almost entirely plagiarized from a book called The Burian, which was written by Oneida founder John Humphrey Noyes. The book was an utter failure, and Charles finally stopped trying to make money through religion. Instead, he found a new fixation, politics. At the beginning of 1880, 39-year-old Charles Gateau was living in Boston. When he read up on the political engagements of the day, he discovered that he aligned with the Republican stalwarts and was a supporter of Ulysses S. Grant. Grant had already served as president for eight years, from 1869 to 1876. He didn't seek a third term, though it would be another 75 years before the 22nd Amendment put term limits on the presidency. Instead, he was succeeded by Rutherford B. Hayes. Unfortunately, Hayes was wildly unpopular, and it sent the radical side of the Republican Party into a frenzy. They wanted Grant back for a third term. Charles Guiteau agreed with their assessment. In the weeks leading up to the Republican National Convention in June 1880, Charles, who had zero political experience, spent his days writing a speech that he believed would ultimately help Grant during his campaign. The public perception was that Grant was going to win the nomination for the Republicans. Winifred Hancock was the favorite among the Democrats. Charles titled his speech, Grant Against Hancock. However, when news came that James Garfield had won the nomination, Charles simply scratched out Grant's name and replaced it with Garfield's. With his speech in one hand and a small bag in the other, Charles walked onto the deck of the steamship SS Stonington. He was headed to New York City, where the Republican campaign headquarters was located. Charles was ready to do his part to help get Garfield into the White House, despite his more moderate beliefs. On the evening of June 11, 1880, as the SS Stonington neared the Long Island Sound on the Connecticut River, a thick layer of fog covered the water. 
At around 11.30 p.m., the ship collided with its sister steamship, the SS Narragansett. Charles Gateau watched in horror as passengers from the Narragansett, still in their nightgowns and pajamas, rushed outside to see what had happened. Within minutes of the collision, the boiler room exploded, setting the entire deck ablaze. Men, women, and children threw themselves over the railing and into the water. Crew members from both ships attempted to rescue the drowning people in the river. Within 30 minutes of colliding, the Narragansett sank. Roughly 50 people lost their lives. Meanwhile, the Stonington managed to stay afloat while another ship, City of New York, came to its rescue. When Charles stepped off the rescue ship in the early hours of June 12th, a renewed sense of purpose swelled within him. Surviving the collision confirmed that he was on the right course to fulfill his mission from God. Instead of traveling around as an evangelist, his true calling was to get James Garfield elected. No one was going to stop him. Charles Guiteau arrived in New York later that day, determined to fulfill his mission. He quickly printed off copies of his speech to distribute it around the city and throughout the Republican headquarters. From then until the election, Charles made regular trips to hotels and dining halls where prominent Republicans frequented. He even managed to meet vice presidential nominee Chester Arthur and convinced him to let Charles read his speech at a small gathering. With each passing day, Charles became more and more convinced that he was going to be instrumental in James's victory. He began to envision a reward for his efforts in the campaign. A consulship seemed like the appropriate thank you for all of his hard work. On November 2nd, 1880, James Garfield won the presidency. For the next four months, Charles continued to make himself known to powerful Republicans still residing in New York. He knew that it was only a matter of time before Garfield began making appointments. Not wanting to miss out, he wrote to the president-elect, inquiring about becoming ambassador to Austria. But he never got a response. In the weeks leading up to the inauguration, Charles Guiteau moved to Washington, D.C. Once Garfield was sworn in on March 4, 1881, 39-year-old Charles made daily visits to the White House to inquire about his appointment. Even after the assassination of Lincoln, security for the White House was sparse. Many believed John Wilkes Booth was an anomaly. Charles was able to just waltz on in. By March, Charles decided he no longer wanted Vienna. Instead, he preferred Paris. With a letter in hand, Charles was prepared to list off his credentials and qualifications to Garfield himself, as well as let the president know that it was his speech, Garfield over Hancock, that got him elected. One day in March, while waiting at the White House, Charles finally got to meet Garfield face to face. Charles handed the president his speech and informed him that he was applying for the Paris consulship. Charles was certain that Garfield knew exactly who he was as he read over the speech, but he didn't say a word, just nodded and left. To Charles, this meant his appointment was imminent. 
However, that meeting didn't stop Charles from harassing other cabinet officials, especially James Blaine, the newly appointed Secretary of State. At first, Blaine told Charles that his application for the Paris appointment would be studied with others. However, after two straight months of visits from Charles, Blaine had had enough. On May 14, 1881, Charles once again confronted Blaine about the position. In a flash of rage, Blaine snapped, Never speak to me about the Paris consulship again. Charles was taken aback. That night, he wrote to Garfield, warning him that Blaine was a wicked man. But Garfield never received this letter. His private secretary placed it in a special folder known as the eccentric file. Four days after the incident with Blaine, Charles was in bed contemplating the recent resignation of stalwart Republican leader Senator Roscoe Conkling. Garfield and Conkling were in the midst of a heated battle involving appointments. Conkling, in an act of protest, resigned from the Senate. Since becoming involved in politics, Charles had always considered himself more a radical stalwart than a moderate half-breed. With Conkling gone, that meant the wicked half-breed Blaine would have more sway over James Garfield. An idea began to ruminate in Charles's head. He knew that Vice President Chester A. Arthur was aligned with Conkling. If Garfield was out of the way, then Arthur would become president and everything would be better. Perhaps this was the mission from God he had been waiting for. The special calling, why he was spared on the SS Stonington. In the days that followed, Charles continued to write to James Garfield asking for Blaine's resignation. And each morning, Charles would scour the papers looking for said resignation. It never came. If he wanted to squash Blaine's influence, he would have to take matters into his own hands. On June 1st, 1881, Charles Guiteau came to the consequential conclusion he needed to kill the President of the United States. Coming up, the story of James Garfield. Now, back to the story. If there was ever a perfect example of an American rags-to-riches story, James Abram Garfield would fit the bill. He was born on November 19, 1831, in Orange Township, Ohio, roughly 15 miles east of Cleveland. Garfield was born to Abram and Eliza Garfield in abject poverty. Their 20-acre farm never turned a profit, and the tiny log cabin was barely large enough for the seven-member family. When Garfield was two, tragedy struck the household. After saving the farm from a wildfire, Abram was struck with exhaustion and fever. Because they were unable to pay for an adequate doctor, Abram succumbed to his illness and died within a few days. The family remained in relative poverty for the rest of Garfield's childhood, but that didn't stop Eliza from instilling a sense of pride in her children's minds. She made sure they worked and made something of themselves so they could look any person in the face, heads held high in their accomplishments. Garfield was Eliza's favorite child, and she had goals for him. 
education was of the utmost importance. However, Garfield had dreams of his own. He wanted to be a sailor. When he was 16, he left home to work on the Ohio and Erie Canal as a driver. A few months into the job, he fell into the canal one evening after losing his balance. He was alone as the other workers were all asleep and he feared he was going to drown. By sheer will, Garfield was able to pull himself back onto the boat. Dripping wet and shivering, he wondered why God spared him that night, a notion that stuck with him for the rest of his life. The incident gave Garfield malaria and he was forced to return home. As his mother nursed him back to health, she asked if his foolish sailing days were over. They were. In the fall of 1851, just before turning 20, James Garfield enrolled in the preparatory school Western Reserve Eclectic Institute in Hiram, Ohio, later named Hiram College. To pay for tuition at Hiram, Garfield worked as a janitor, and when he wasn't working, he read Greek and Latin classics like Homer and Virgil. Soon, he discovered that he had a skill as an orator and a mild interest in politics. It was also at Hiram that Garfield met his eventual wife, Lucretia Rudolph. Their courtship was long, painful, and awkward. Despite being full of joy, Garfield seemed to be stiff and distant towards Lucretia. His letters were often overly polite in an off-putting kind of way. Lucretia, for her part, was unsure if he actually loved her or not. Because of these doubts, she was unable to fully express her desires for him. It took eight long years before they were married. In that time, Garfield attended Williams College in Massachusetts to further his education. While at Williams, he became more and more politically active. He passionately railed against slavery and soon found himself engaging with members of the new party of abolitionists and free soilers, the Republicans. Upon graduating in 1856, Garfield went back to Hiram College to teach. Within a year, the 26-year-old was the president of the school. Had fate not intervened, he more than likely would have stayed at Hiram, or perhaps moved on to another institution as the Garfield family grew. However, destiny had other plans for him. In 1859, in a special election after the death of a state senator, James Garfield was chosen to replace him. At 28, he was the youngest member of the Ohio Senate. His status quickly rose for a variety of reasons. He was a gifted orator, he understood how to play the game, and he had the ability to make friends, even across the aisle. Garfield knew, however, that if he was going to be taken seriously as a politician, he needed to be a lawyer. He began studying for the bar and eventually passed it in 1861. Just as Garfield began his legal career, the American Civil War broke out. Duty called. Within months, he joined the Union Army and was commissioned a lieutenant colonel. He spent his early days recruiting farmers and former students. The recruits eventually made up the 42nd Ohio Volunteers. Garfield was their leader and was quickly promoted to colonel. The 42nd was assigned to drive out the growing Confederate numbers in Kentucky, a key territory for both the North and the South. It was, for all intents and purposes, 
a suicide mission. Garfield was an academic and commanded roughly 500 men made up of farmers and students. The odds were stacked against him, but he took the job without hesitation. On January 10th, 1862, Garfield led his men into a decisive victory at the Battle of Middle Creek in Eastern Kentucky. For this, he was promoted to Brigadier General. But Garfield was deeply affected by what he had seen on the battlefield, watching men he had drafted die under his command. More than anything, a resolve to defeat the rebels entered him so as to not let those men die in vain. In October 1862, 30-year-old James Garfield was elected to the U.S. Congress to represent Ohio's 19th district, even though he'd done nothing to campaign for the position. When James Garfield first stepped foot in the Capitol building in December of 1863, he had no idea he was about to begin a 17-year-long career representing the 19th district of Ohio. Once in Congress, Garfield quickly aligned himself with the radical Republican branch of the party. Like all radicals, he grew frustrated with the more moderate President Lincoln, especially as the war was winding to a close and talks of reconstruction began. He believed, as many of the radicals did, that Southern landowners had forfeited their right to their property by taking up arms against the Union. He wanted it seized. Garfield believed that Lincoln was too soft on the South. Even after Lincoln's death, which he mourned greatly, Garfield continued his staunch radicalism. Much of this passion came as a reaction to the policies of Lincoln's successor, Andrew Johnson. Many accused Johnson of being a Southern sympathizer. Johnson too easily allowed politicians from the South back into Congress. And with that came their ability to vote on legislation involving the newly freed black slaves. Garfield, a staunch abolitionist, found it abhorrent that these Southern traders were allowed to vote on laws that essentially restricted black Americans, including school segregation and several forms of disenfranchisement. Garfield fought for black suffrage. He firmly believed that in order for the Civil War to be truly considered victorious, black Americans needed to have the right to vote. But in an 1865 letter to a friend, Garfield revealed that the idea of black Americans becoming a political equal gave him a strong feeling of repugnance. For all of his devotion to civil rights and to abolishing slavery, he still considered white people superior. James Garfield's congressional career throughout the 1870s consisted of a growing reputation of statesmanship and distaste for corruption. He was hailed for his ability to learn and study even the most boring and mundane spreadsheets. Finances caught his attention early on, and he found himself on the Committee on Ways and Means and the Committee on Appropriations. By the early 1870s, Garfield, now in his 40s, advocated for a Department of Education. He believed that funds from public lands should be routed to pay for it. However, his congressional career was marred by two major scandals. In the summer of 1872, Garfield was connected to the Credit Mobilier scandal, in which politicians received bribe money 
in exchange for votes that favored the Union Pacific Railroad. Garfield never took the bribe, but he did accept a loan, not realizing the implications. Congress ultimately absolved him of any wrongdoing, but his association with the scandal followed him forever. The second transgression was known as the salary grab. In 1873, Congress voted to give themselves a 50% raise, including retroactive pay for lame-duck congressmen. Despite voting against the bill, Garfield was still chairman of the Committee of Appropriations. Many of his Ohio constituents, several of whom were failing to pay their farm mortgages, blamed him for what they considered theft by the representatives. Garfield was dejected. Clearly, it was his lowest point as a congressman. He had built up a reputation as honest and incorruptible. Then, in the span of a year, his name became synonymous with scandal and corruption. By the mid-1870s, the American people were sick of the fraudulence in Washington. Disdain for the spoils system in particular formed a groundswell. Finding its roots in Andrew Jackson's presidency, the spoils system consisted of hiring and firing civil servants based not on merit, but on political affiliation or campaign support. By the time Ulysses S. Grant was president in the early 1870s, the spoils system had become so corrupt that even the public began to cry out for change. In 1876, after two terms of scandal, Grant decided against running for a third term. Rutherford Hayes, by a single electoral vote, was elected to replace him. Hayes detested the spoils system and hoped to change the appointment process. This led to a division within the Republican Party. Hayes had promised to only serve for a single term, and due to declining health, he kept that promise. But in doing so, the 1880 Republican election became chaos. James Garfield went into the convention in Chicago with a sense of foreboding. The party was firmly divided between stalwart Republicans led by Roscoe Conkling and half-breed Republicans led by James Blaine. The main issue that divided the two factions was political patronage. Stalwarts were in favor of tradition, the spoil system, and political machines. Half-breeds wanted civil service reform. The stage was set for a stalwart versus half-breed showdown. Ulysses S. Grant, running for a third term, faced off against James Blaine and James Sherman. But after two days of voting, James Garfield, seemingly out of nowhere, became the dark horse Republican nominee. In the years since the Civil War, Garfield's political radicalism had softened a bit. Going into the convention, he leaned more towards the moderate half-breeds. His nomination represented compromise, and compromise also meant that stalwart Chester A. Arthur was chosen to be his running mate. A few months later, in November of 1880, James Garfield became president. For the first and only time in U.S. history, the offices of representative, senator-elect, and president-elect were all held by a single person at the same time. Garfield was also the first sitting U.S. representative to be elected president. But now that Garfield was elected, it meant that he was prone to the dangers of the office. Ironically, he seemed unconcerned 
with assassination attempts. When General Sherman showed Garfield a letter about an increase in threats, he shrugged it off. He said to Sherman, assassination can be no more guarded against than death by lightning, and it's best not to worry about either. James Garfield should have worried a little more. Within a year, he would be struck, not by lightning, but by an assassin's bullet. Coming up, James Garfield's administration is stopped in its infancy at the hands of Charles Guiteau. Now, back to the story. In early November of 1880, 48-year-old Dark Horse candidate James Garfield was elected the 20th president of the United States. His nomination in a fractured Republican Party was seen as a way to unify the two warring sides. Almost immediately, Garfield set about appointing a cabinet. In the months between the election and his March inauguration, the fight between the Republican stalwarts and half-breeds raged on, specifically between Roscoe Conkling and James Blaine. Garfield felt loyalty towards Blaine. In his earlier years in the House of Representatives, they were rivals. But with the rise of Conkling, as well as Blaine's ability to shift support to Garfield's nomination during the convention, his heart softened. The two men promised to work together to unify the party and the country. When word got out that Garfield planned to appoint Blaine as the all-important Secretary of State, the stalwarts were outraged. Conkling demanded that one of his stalwarts be given a position to the next highest cabinet position, Treasury Secretary. Garfield instead chose a man who had no particular affiliation with either faction, Senator William Wyndham, chairman of the Senate's Appropriations Committee. As Garfield rounded out his cabinet, he tried to strike a balance between where each member lied on the stalwart half-breed spectrum as well as the geography of where they came from. One appointment that seemed to please just about everyone within the Republican Party was that of Robert Todd Lincoln, eldest son of Abraham Lincoln, as Secretary of War. Despite being a stalwart himself, Lincoln had a strong reputation among both factions. But Conkling hated every appointment that Garfield made. One of the most egregious came in the form of the Postmaster General. He had selected a stalwart and a good friend of Conkling's, Thomas James. The president thought he was doing Conkling a favor by appointing the stalwart, but ironically, Conkling didn't appreciate Garfield making stalwart appointments without his approval. Days before the inauguration, Conkling, along with Vice President Chester Arthur, barged into Garfield's office unannounced. For over an hour, Conkling screamed at him, charging him with neglecting the needs of the party. Garfield took the beratement in silence. At the end of it, he smiled at Conkling and made no promises or apologies for his actions. He was the president, not Conkling. Despite his best efforts at keeping things even, Garfield's cabinet was met with some criticism. Many could see Blaine's influence and called Garfield out publicly for it. But ultimately, each decision Garfield made was his own. Finally, on March 4, 1881, as a layer of snow blanketed the Capitol, 49-year-old James Garfield was sworn into office. 
His mother Eliza and abolitionist Frederick Douglass sat on the dais with him. Because he had been so preoccupied with cabinet picks, Garfield didn't have much time to write an inauguration speech. In fact, he had been up until 3 a.m. working on it. When it came time to finally deliver the oration, he seemed despondent and exhausted. The one portion of his speech that seemed inspired was about civil rights for black Americans. He promised to protect the newly freed community under the rights of the Constitution, as well as righting the wrongs that had accumulated during the course of emancipation and reconstruction. He reinforced his idea that education was key. If everyone in the North and the South was literate, the wounds from the war could more easily be healed. He concluded the speech discussing civil service reform, a topic that made the politicians, especially Roscoe Conkling, squirm in their seats. In the days and weeks that followed, Garfield was busy filling positions. As mentioned before, the White House had a fairly open-door policy. Job seekers were allowed to enter the White House and leave their resumes. It was around this time that Garfield met his future assassin, Charles Guiteau, when he presented his application for the Paris consulship, along with a copy of his speech, Garfield against Hancock. Garfield forgot all about Charles the moment he left. He was busy running a nation. One of the first items of business was nominating a Supreme Court justice for a seat that had been vacated the previous year. Before leaving office, Rutherford Hayes had nominated Stanley Matthews, but the Senate didn't confirm him, instead waiting for the new president to make a selection. James Garfield nominated Matthews again. In the closest vote in Supreme Court judicial history, Matthews was confirmed by a single vote. Next on the agenda was corruption in the Postal Service. In April, Garfield ordered an investigation into alleged Star Route corruption. Star Route described postal routes used by private contractors designated with an asterisk or star in the registry. During the Grant and Hayes administrations, government officials assigned these routes based on bribes instead of allowing the contractors to fairly bid on them. Rumors of corruption involving fraudulent bidding between private contractors had reached Garfield's ears. After suffering the humiliation of the credit mobilier and cash grab scandals, he knew he needed to stop the fraudulence as quickly as possible. When word got back to Garfield that two members of his campaign were linked to the scandal, he told his Attorney General Wayne McVeigh and Postmaster General Thomas James to not only probe this ulcer to the bottom, but to cut it out. As Garfield was nominating Supreme Court justices and opening investigations, he was still locked in a battle with Roscoe Conkling over the soul of the Republican Party. Leading into April, minor government positions were still open and Conkling continued to fight for his stalwarts. Garfield eventually gave the stalwarts a couple of appointments, but this annoyed his moderate Secretary of State, James Blaine. In the middle of March, the battle between Garfield and Conkling came to a head when he appointed Senator William Robertson, a bitter rival of Conkling's, as a collector of customs in New York. 
Robertson had rallied against Grant at the 1880 convention, and Conkling was determined to make sure the staunch half-breed supporter had no position within the administration. But Garfield appointed him anyway. It was a sign that the president was not going to be beholden to any side. Livid, Conkling ordered Thomas James and Wayne McVeigh, both stalwarts, to resign their posts as attorney general and postmaster general. They met with the president, but Garfield convinced both men to disobey Conkling and remain in the cabinet. At this point, word of the feud between Garfield and Conkling had reached the press. Outside of Conkling, one of Garfield's biggest rivals was his own vice president, Chester Arthur, a stalwart who was fiercely loyal to the president's rival. When the press ran headlines about the feud, Arthur defended not the president, but Conkling. As punishment, Arthur wasn't allowed to enter the White House for several weeks. Unfortunately for Conkling, public opinion was mostly in Garfield's favor. Conkling could read the writing on the wall. William Robertson would soon be confirmed by the Senate as New York customs collector. It would be another embarrassment for the stalwarts. He had to take drastic action. In the middle of May, Roscoe Conkling resigned as senator from New York. He assumed that the New York state legislature would re-elect him back into the Senate. A symbolic gesture, the machinations were intended to make a grand show over the sway Conkling had in politics. The plan failed miserably. The New York legislature didn't re-elect him during the special election. The power move failed and sent a blow to the stalwart cause. As news of Conkling's resignation made headlines, the person who was the most affected by it was Charles Guiteau. The resignation occurred just after he had been berated by Secretary James Blaine for his constant needling about an ambassadorship. For days, Charles mulled over what had happened. He became convinced that somehow, Blaine was responsible for Conkling's resignation. On June 1st, 1881, 39-year-old Charles made the decision that the only way to save the party and the country from Blaine was by eliminating James Garfield. If Vice President Chester Arthur became president, Conkling could return to Washington. On June 9th, Charles borrowed $15, worth $376 today, from a friend with the promise of paying him back soon. With that $15, he went to a sporting goods store and purchased a 44 caliber British Bulldog, a box of cartridges, and a penknife. For the next couple weeks, Charles stalked James Garfield. The president's schedule was reported in the paper, which Charles closely read. He tailed them around Washington as he went on walks and to meetings. He even followed Garfield when he attended services at the Disciples of Christ Church. When he wasn't lurking in the shadows, he practiced his shooting down by the Potomac. And in the evenings, he wrote long letters explaining why he needed to eliminate the president. Many of these letters were to no one in particular. However, one was addressed to General William Tecumseh Sherman, asking to be rescued once he was in jail. Charles recalled the 12-day manhunt after John Wilkes Booth assassinated Abraham Lincoln 
which led to Booth's death at the Garrett farm. Charles wasn't going to die like Booth. One Saturday, Charles took a stroll down to the city jail to see where he would probably end up after the deed was done. Though he wasn't permitted inside, Charles liked what he saw from the outside and figured it was a sacrifice worth making. Initially, Charles decided that the Disciples of Christ Church was the perfect place to assassinate the president. On Sunday, June 12th, he followed Garfield to the service and sat in the back. Charles had an opportunity to fulfill his divine mission, but decided against it. Instead, he listened raptly to the sermon, eventually shouting out, What ye think of Christ? That night, Garfield wrote about Charles's outburst in his diary, not realizing that the two of them had already met months before. After failing to act that day, Charles determined to follow through on the following Sunday, June 19th. However, the plan changed again when Charles discovered that Garfield would be going out of town for a few days. Lucretia was ill, and Garfield was going to take her to Elberon, New Jersey, in the hopes of recovery. Charles realized that this was a boon. The Baltimore and Potomac Station was actually a much better place to execute his plan. On Saturday, June 18, 1880, Charles waited for Garfield to arrive at the Baltimore and Potomac Railroad Station. When the carriage arrived, he readied the pistol in his pocket. Then, all of a sudden, Charles let go of the weapon. He watched in disappointment as the frail-looking First Lady, Lucretia Garfield, stepped out of the carriage after her husband. Not wishing to upset the ill woman by killing her husband before her very eyes, Charles packed up and decided he would wait until Garfield was alone. The president returned alone to Washington, D.C. nine days later. He made plans to go back to Elberon to pick up Lucretia in early July. When Charles read in the papers that Garfield would be returning to the Baltimore and Potomac station on July 2nd, he knew it was finally going to be the day to strike. On July 1st, Garfield spent the evening with Secretary of State James Blaine. They toasted Roscoe Conkling getting what he deserved and complained about Vice President Chester Arthur, who was consoling Conkling in New York. For a brief moment, James Garfield was happy being president. The next morning, Charles Gateau woke up at 5 a.m. After eating breakfast, he returned to his room, retrieved his pistol and some letters. One was addressed to the senior-most officer in the entire Army, Commanding General of the United States Army, William Tecumseh Sherman. Charles hoped that Sherman would understand why he did what he had to do and hoped that Sherman would protect him after the assassination. At 9.15 a.m., Charles arrived at the Baltimore and Potomac Railroad Station. Five minutes later, he watched as a carriage pulled to the front. When the door opened, James Garfield, James Blaine, Robert Todd Lincoln, and Garfield's teenage sons, Harry and Jim, exited. Garfield asked police officer Patrick Kearney how much time he had until the train departed and was politely told 10 minutes. With a nod, the party made its way into the station to wait. 
Blaine was a few paces ahead of Garfield, while Harry and Jim were a few feet behind their father. Upon entering the waiting room, Garfield had no idea that Charles was standing just three feet behind him. To Charles, this was the moment he had been waiting for all these weeks. He wasn't going to waste it. He reached into his pocket and pulled out the 44 British Bulldog. With calm, unwavering composure, Charles aimed the pistol at Garfield's back and pulled the trigger. A sudden pain ran up Garfield's right arm as the 44 caliber bullet sliced through it. In utter confusion, he shouted, My God, what is this? As he turned around, Charles's calmness suddenly turned to fear. He fired again. The second bullet burrowed into Garfield's back. The impact caused his knees to buckle and he fell forward. When he hit the ground, he vomited. Blood began to pool around his coat. When the echo of the gun blast finally ceased, there was a moment of silence in the train station. Then a woman screamed. Chaos erupted. Charles could see all eyes turn to him and the pistol in his hand. He had just shot the president. There was only one thing left to do. Run. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back Monday with part two of James Garfield. Next week, we'll explore how in the days after he was shot, Garfield's doctors failed to adhere to the new medical theories of sanitation. And we'll discuss the sensational trial of Charles Guiteau as he used the insanity defense. You can find all episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Assassinations, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Assassinations on Spotify, just open the app and type Assassinations in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Maggie Admire, and Travis Clark. This episode of Assassinations was written by Joe Guerra and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. Mm-hmm.